Winterland, it was just an easy stage change because it was really big. It was an ice arena. It just sounded great. I can, I can, and it smelled great. You know, I could smell it. You know, it had a smell about it. You had the crowd all the way around you. It was 360 degrees, so you could turn around and address the folks up behind you. There were a couple thousand of them back there. It was nice because it made you, you know, you were in the middle, not in the middle, but kind of in the middle of the room and the music was emanating from the stage and then bouncing back down to the stage, that plus the crowd noise. And being in the center of that whole vortex of, of, of energy, was it was a pretty special place. The place, uh, the capacity was about 5,400, but it always had that effect of a cartoon of bulging at the sides because uh, the place was stuffed with people. You couldn't keep them out of there, you know? I think it held maybe four or 5,000 people, six, five, five, 6,000. And Bill would put like 9,000 people in there and, and we caught them. One time we had people at the door doing the clicker and that's when we caught Bill selling the tickets twice. He wouldn't tear the tickets and then he went out and resold them. And so that's where we really nabbed him. great documentary i recommend everybody going to find it's called winterland a, Mil- a million memories and it is really good it's talking about the grateful dead performing there but i think it's even if you're not a great you know not a big fan not a great fan not a big fan of the grateful dead i still think there's a lot of cool stuff in there about the venue itself this is a great set of episodes i did with travis williamson this first episode we're gonna we had so much content i'm breaking it into two episodes uh, technically sort of three episodes. Uh, the third will just be random stuff that happened in other Decembers of the Doors history that we just sort of got on a tangent on. But this, these two parts, I'm going to release one. Technically, I think it's going to come out on Christmas night, but I'm releasing it in tandem. I'm releasing it, I guess, historically. The first episode will release December 26th, which would be the first night that we have recorded by George Feast, and the second episode will release December 28th, which have been the third night the Doors performed, but would be the last night that George Feast recorded. So be sure to keep an ear out for part two. Here in part one, we basically go over the history of the venue, some bands that perform there, and we go over the set list for the, f- for the first three concerts. We talk, talk a little bit about Chuck Berry's set. And we get into a little speculation, some of it about AI. We talk a little bit about New Haven, the history and events that led up to this. Vince Trainer actually has a very interesting bit I put in here about his experience at New Haven, about him being there. And that comes from Travis. So if you get a chance, uh, Travis has a great YouTube channel that he I think he's trying to upload more stuff to called Mr. Good Trips Without the I. So it's M-R-G-O-O-D-T-R-P-S. He just released a cool video with Vince Trainer doing commentary over the Crawling King Snake GTK performance. So be sure to check that out too. And be sure to subscribe to his channel. 
hopefully stuff some more stuff keeps rolling out me and him may do some stuff to put up there too i really don't know so we'll, we'll see how things go again all that being said this is a very interesting fun episode so without further ado i'm gonna go right into that Hello and welcome to Opening the Doors, a podcast dedicated to the doors, psychedelic rock, everything in between. I'm your host, Bradley Netherton. Joining me again, all the way from a little island, I guess technically a continent too. Is it the only place that is a country and an, and a continent, right? We are a continent and a country. So I think maybe I'm right on that. I don't know. I'm getting a little too fancy with these intros, I think. Travis Williamson, the the Doors Australian. What what do we say we're going to call, call you? Touch Me Down Under is going to be his new Touch moniker. Touch Me Down Under. That's good. I like it. Travis, man, how you how are you doing? I'm good. It's, a, it's a, just another sunny day here in South Australia. Today, though, for we, we are trying to stretch this as much as possible and to get a, a show about the Doors in 1967, something Christmassy. And what is more Christmassy than the Doors playing the day after Christmas, uh, December 26th, 27th, and 28th. And these are a set of shows that the Doors perform. We'll, t- we'll give our thoughts on the performances, but these are the closest to Christmas, I think, of anything I found Doors related. There's going to be an, a, a podcast release after this where we'll just our general thoughts about the Doors in December in general. And you can listen to that too. But this is the closest they get to Christmas. I think I personally think, and we'll talk about this throughout the show, that these are some really solid shows. There's there's a lot of cuts in these tapes. That's sort of unfortunate, but I think that there's the the structure here and what I've heard. These are great shows. I think the band's in top form. This may be peak Jim Morrison, and I don't think that's hyperbole. I really think Jim is really amazing here. These shows sound great. George Feast is the person who records them, and yeah. I've heard speculation on where these were recorded. I think one person mentioned that he was, I don't remember if it mentioned in the, at the mild equator site, you know, our friends over there who do some amazing work and, and shout out to Chris. We shouted him out on this other episode, but go ahead and, and shout him out here for his great uh, transfer of these tapes, the audience tape preservation channel or ATPC as Travis likes to call it. <laughs> he helped George transfer these tapes there's two tapes in question, and also there's a Chuck Berry tape that from the same set of shows that he did. But we're going to get into all that and talk about the shows. But what are your general thoughts about these shows, Travis? I think these are great shows, and they're among the first shows I ever heard of the band. And they are two of very few uh, tapes that we have from 1967, which makes them very valuable. I think the performances are spot on. And when the music's over in particular, I think reaches its peak around this time because you hear earlier versions of the music's over from the Kaiser Dome tape of July 67, which was formally mislabeled as uh, being in December. And the version of music's over that night is a very early, sparse and slower version, much like the one of the Matrix. But in the Winterland, Krieger is on fire. Yes. His lead. And the absolutely off the chain. Morrison has very good energy. We hear an early version of Wake Up and we hear the intro to Run and Blue within When the Music's Over. So once again, making that version of Music's Over extra special, thankfully they didn't try and put that poem into the studio cut because I think it would have been ridiculous. But live in concert, it's just another little off-script moment from Morrison, which is nice to hear. Yeah, and... You know, Strange Days, I think, is one of the some people I think talking to Reed Verrickman, who who's a, a very knowledgeable fan and other people in the community. Strange Days by many is considered the Doors best album. I think When the Music's Over is my favorite Doors song personally. I don't know if 
Strange Days is their best album. I, I definitely can see that being their best album, though. But this is like that time. This is peak Strange Days, you know. This is around, you know, they, they include a lot of songs from it. And, of course, some some from the first album. Not a lot of songs, I suppose. But a good mix, you know, of things from here and there. Well, really not really. I say that, but not really. They only had played, through, I guess, four songs total from Strange Days. So The Unknown Soldier, Love Me Two Times, Your Lost Little Girl, and When the Music's Over, right? Well, it's interesting about The Unknown Soldier because I think that for a long time this was said to be the earliest version of The Unknown Soldier, and it does happen kind of slowly. You know, the pace of this song is is not quite up to what it was in 1968. It's sort of coming along a little slow. But I do believe it was performed a month earlier at their Winterland run, and the version at that time is slightly different again. Of course, you can't find that one on YouTube like you can the George Feast tape, but Love Me Two Times certainly appears as an early version. Wouldn't you say it's it's kind of slower and yeah. lacks a little energy? I think that's a good thing. You mentioned... This is a good place to bring this up, is the November they play Winterland as well. It's worth mentioning, I think, that the Mild Equator actually lists the tape in circulation or the tape that's out of circulation. Mild Equator lists it as a Fillmore Auditorium show from November. But I always thought it was possibly a Winterland show. I, I think there was a mix-up. I, I don't know. It's interesting that, that, like how this works, like the Doors perform Winterland in, in November and they come back in December, it really makes you wonder, like, what the scheduling's like for that. If they're just because this is sort of, I mean, they've they've hit it big, and I mean, the Winterland is a bigger ballroom, but like th- three night shows and and coming back in December, maybe the win. Do you think that the Bill Graham heard them in November and thought they were so good that he booked them back? Because Bill Graham was famous, like one of his big things was booking these extended stays in December. Like he would book a lot of groups. I mean, famously, Jimi Hendrix, some of his sets at the Fillmore East are so notorious. Uh, and even at the Fillmore West, Jimi Hendrix would play, you know, he played those the 69 into 70 shows going into New Year's Eve. And, and Bill Graham was all about around the holidays, just loading up with concerts. And maybe that the, you think the Doors impressed him so much in November that he brought them back and said, hey, you boys come on back three days in December after Christmas. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want to speculate on what Graham thought, but I know that they were playing the Fillmore back in January of 67. And then through the year, you know, they played the Fillmore again. They first played the Winterland in November, but they played the Fillmore a couple of times. They played in January and they played in June. They were not new for Bill Bill Graham. And, of course, there are rumours of tapes, again, from the January performances. I think it's interesting that they play the Fillmore and the Winterland back-to-back in November, to be honest. Three shows in San Francisco, three Graham venues. I think that's interesting. I will completely speculate, if, if Travis won't, that Bill Graham seems like the type, from talking of talk, talking extensively to Joshua White on and off the record, that if when Bill Graham had a, a pocket of performers he enjoyed listening to or he, he thought put on good shows, he would try to incorporate them the best he could. Even the story of Jim Morrison slinging the mic and hitting Bill Graham in the head, you know, Bill just taking it in stride. And I think Jim got him a helmet as a gift. So, you know, things like that. I think Bill Graham, when he had a group and he knew there was something special with the group, he would try to book them more and more. And 
the Fillmore, you know, the Fillmore shows are, are, you know, a smaller venue, the Winterland, you know, considerably bigger at 5,400 capacity. I think that the, the November show could have been like a prove, prove it show. Like Bill Graham said, Hey, I'm going to book y'all for one night at the Winterland ballroom, you know, this, this other venue. And if you guys can fill this place, you know, I will book you for, for the, you know, probably the biggest honor you can have is which to to be the ho- a part of this holiday tradition that Bill Graham has in, in having these sweet suite of shows around the holidays. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a good, that's a good point. And you raise the question that at all of these performances, how many of them were the doors, the headliner, did they headline in January of 67? Did they headline in June of 67 at the Fillmore? I mean, we know they headlined in December. Yeah. Did they headline in November as well? Yeah, the Doors did headline with this artwork. I'm not not anyone dis- disparage artwork. Um, it was done by Jim Blashfield. And we'll talk about the artist who done the artwork of the infamous December shows. But this is sort of a weird look at that, that Jim. Yeah, what's going on there? Is that meant to be him, like a surfer boy or something? I have no idea, man. What, what, whatever it is, though, I mean, it's... It's 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 artwork, definitely. I can say that. So we we've I've seen different variations, like, and maybe there's different. So I approximately forty five hundred attended the Winterland show in November, and George Feast, who was at the December shows, it shows up at that November show. So I don't know why he didn't record that one, but it's really cool though. He was uh, there. Yeah, he was at the November show as well. He, oh wow! He took some photographs. Too bad. Take a temperature. Yeah, too bad he didn't bring that tape recorder to that one. But we, all that being said, I wanted to talk about a, a little bit of the, about the venue. We talked about fifty one hundred people there. I always love looking at the history. And when we talked about the when I talked about the Boston Ring with Tarn, it was very interesting. It was a skating rink. I don't know what the deal with these skating rinks are, but the Winterland Winterland Ballroom was also an ice skating rink and a music venue, as we know. But it was located at the corner of Post Street and Steiner Street. And it was converted by Bill Graham for exclusive use as a music venue in 71. So basically it's, it still has a multi-purpose use until 71 when it becomes a full-time music venue. Graham later ends up merchandising a company called Winterland Productions, which sells like concert shirts and they memorabilia and stuff like that. Bill Graham was really savvy. And from talking to Joshua White, he seemed real savvy on this stuff. And and, I, and if you go, if you want to go back and listen to that show, it's it's pretty interesting how Bill would go to these West Coast shows and fly from the West Coast on like a red eye on his private. I don't know if he, I don't know if he flew on his own plane or what happened there, but he would. I guess he'd had. To, I don't know. I I don't want to speculate on that. I've, I've done forgot what was mentioned, but he had fly from California, red eye basically to New York to catch the shows the next night in New York. It's it's uh, absurd what he did to do that. Do you think, uh, just as a tangent here, do you think it's possible that when the Simpsons did their Spinal Tap episode in what, maybe 92, 93, do you think, uh, do you remember that episode? you remember where the Spinal Tap were playing and the the stage is covered in water and the promoter says, I've got to be honest with you, six days a week this place is a hockey rink? Oh, and the, uh, yeah, and the singer says, this is a rock concert, not the bleeding splish splash show. And I just wondered if that was a tip of the hat to Bill Graham before he set up the Winterland as the dedicated music venue in 1971. If it really was still a, an ice hockey rink, I think it's interesting. I don't know because it's weird because, you know, the Boston Arena was a hockey rink. Uh, this was a skating rink. 
it's weird and i'm sure as i go along and do more research in these venues i will find more skating rinks but it's, this place was open june of june 29th of 28 uh, 1928 as the new dreamland auditorium so before it was wonderland it was the new dreamland and it served wow. it served you know we talked about it served as a skating rink but it could be converted into a seated entertainment venue and i and i don't know from personal experience if you've ever been to one, have you ever personally been to like a, a an arena that has been that is like an ice skating rink that has been converted to a music concert, the music venue? Uh, no, but I've been to an arena that is mostly a live music venue that has been used to <laughs> used as an ice skating rink. <laughs> it's a similar experience. I went and saw a group called the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, which, ironically, reading Greg Shaw's book. They opened for the doors at a concert, but they ended up massively changing their direction and becoming more of a bluegrassy type deal. But they opened for the doors. That was one of their first gigs was opening for the doors. And it's in Greg Shaw's book. They performed at this place, the Von Braun Civic Center in Huntsville, Alabama. I went to go see them and they didn't have it in the main music hall, but they had it where they had the, the, the Havoc hockey games. And so they lay like this faux floor down and they bring out the seats and they set it all up, set up the stage and it's cold as hell in there. And you're, I had no idea. Like it's in the middle of the summer. Like I don't remember when the, I think it was either the spring or the summer, but it was relatively warm and we go in there and it's cold and I'm in shorts and a t-shirt to, to go to this concert that's happening in the middle of the summer. You know, I'm thinking, Oh yeah, it's cold as hell, man. And I'm in this venue freezing my ass off. To see the nitty gritty dirt man, and it was—it's funny looking back on it now, but I—but it is—it is not always an enjoyable experience. They have a lot more things nowadays, I guess, where the ice stays frozen. There's more technology to keep the ice frozen, so I don't know if they unthawed if they thawed out the ice then or how they did it then. But now, but nowadays they they keep the ice there, and you just go out on 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 the ice, man. Yeah, that surprises me. I my assumption was that they would uh, drain the water, you know, melt the ice and drain the water. Um, so I'm surprised to hear that they have it under a, a deck or a floorboard or something. Yeah, so uh, uh, sort of strange things. It was built for a million dollars. It changed its name, which is about seventeen million in like 2022. The currency, I think, is what I, what I end up finding. Uh, sometimes in the late 30s, it changed its name to Winterland. It was built on the site of the Dreamland Rink. Well, I guess they had one out in the middle there. And in 36, it began hosting the Shipstods and Johnson Ice Follies, which was a stage production, you know, the escapade, sort of winter escapade skating, which I think Boston Arena also hosted. And it also hosted operas, boxing, and tennis matches. So interesting stuff there before becoming the music venue, which actually started in September of 23rd, 1966. Can you name either of the two bands? Just take a shot here. Name one of the two bands that you think in September of 66 with the knowledge you have of San Francisco in the sixth, in the you know mid to late sixties, who was on the double bill of this concert? Name one of the two. Wow. I could never do that and be accurate about it. So I'm going to say the one band who I quite like, and that'd be Buffalo Springfield. Oh, that's a damn good guess. That's not the answer, but that is a good guess. There is a one band I know that it, that opened. This would be the third venue or second or third venue I think that they that they were the first people to perform at. I think one venue their guitarist actually partially owned or something helped open. Oh, is this is this going to be a Grateful Dead reference? Uh, no, it's not a Grateful Dead reference. One does have a Doors t- 
Recorda. They they are on the same label. They're on Electra Records. That would be the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Oh. And the other is Jefferson Airplane, who uh, Marty Ballins, I think, he wasn't he a part of the Matrix opening up? He helped open up yeah. the Matrix, and I think they were the first people to perform there. And they were the first wow. people to perform here for Bill Graham. Uh, and I feel like there might have been another venue they might have opened for. But yeah, the first thing was a double billing of Jefferson Airplane and Buffalo. I about said Buffalo Springfield. Paul Buttersfield Blues Band. And Bill Graham began to rent the venue for larger concerts uh, that his nearby Fillmore Auditorium could not properly accommodate. After And he closed the Fillmore West in 71 and began holding regular weekend shows at the Winterland. And I think me and you were talking earlier, I've, I watched some video of this. The, yeah. the Winterland is such a, I mean, it's a 50, it holds 5,400 people. So, I mean, it's a bigger venue, but it's very intimate. If you look at the pictures of it, the floor seating is, it's, it, it's very rink shaped and the upper deck, even the deck seats are very tight over the top of a lot of seats. And, and it's very, a very quaint, small venue uh, for the size for, I mean, even being a bigger venue, it just is so intimate looking setting. So, I mean, it's just interesting. So, and a lot of acts played there. I didn't realize until I saw this list, I cut a lot of names out of the list I found, but the, 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 Names I felt would be relevant to our discussion, the Rolling Stones, the Who, Black Sabbath, Cream, Fleetwood Mac, Kiss, The Doors, of course, Jimi Hendrix, Steppenwolf, Leonard Skinner, Van Morrison, The Almond Brothers, Grateful Dead, The Band, Big Brothers and The Holding Company, of course, with Janis Joplin, Jethro Tull, Pink Floyd, 10 Years After, Electric Light Orchestra, David Bowie, Santana, Jefferson Airplane, Sons of Champlin, which was uh, in that, that's a group, an offshoot of Chicago, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Shawnee, Deep Purple, Spirit, the Chambers Brothers, Alice Cooper, Frank Zappa, and the Mother's Invention, Mountain, and BB King. So a lot of huge groups that oh, performed here. That is quite a list. That is quite <laughs> a list. And Led Zeppelin's first performed a whole lot of love here. Anyway, a lot of the best known acts played here. Uh, it, it's just so. And and this is something I didn't realize that the Fillmore Auditorium, Fillmore West, was too. Uh, blocks away from here so it, very close venues together and a lot of great albums recorded here P- peter frampton's comes alive the grateful dead of course made this their home base uh i think we have a mutual friend who saw the grateful dead play a lot the band played their last show here on thanksgiving day in 76 and just a lot of other people you know who just made albums here cream of course Live Cream is an amazing album. Love that. Jimi Hendrix Live at the Winterland. We've talked about that. The Doors Bootlegs on Boot Your Butt. A lot of stuff, man. And the final concerts were held in 78, and there's a lot of stories about those that are just crazy, involving the Blues Brothers, mounds of cocaine, Bill Graham riding a huge lip blunt across the sky. It's nuts. I've got a question for you about some of these Winterland recordings. Yes, sir. There's always been a lot of talk about Bill Graham and his people recording shows at the various Bill Graham venues. Now, we know of one Doors tape that's most likely from either the Winterland or the Fillmore in November of 67, which does not circulate. And the audience recordings of the Winterland run of December are the only sources we have for these door shows. Now, there is a rumour that, that there are other Bill Graham recordings. And when Wolfgang's Vault first came online 
I don't know how many years ago that was now. It was more than 10. There was a Chuck Berry recording that was streaming there, which I think you may have made reference to. But you also referenced that Chuck Berry tape being made by George Feast. So my question for you is, did George Feast make the Chuck Berry recording or was the Chuck Berry recording a Bill Graham recording? It could very well be both, but the version that is on, and Chris actually, Chris Summondet, who we've mentioned at the Mild Equator, it is on his audience tape preservation channel as well. He did. He actually has the Chuck Berry song there. So that's the version I know of. As far as a Bill Graham recorded version, I'm, I'm not sure, man. That's a good question. Can I ask you about the November show, what you can say in regards to why that's not circulating? Well, I guess I know why it's not circulating, but who would have recorded that? I wouldn't even know how to answer that question. I mean, we know that it was a semi-professional multi-track tape. The information that came to me was that it was recorded by Bill Graham's people, but I, that may not be true. Okay, but so it is a semi-professional. Okay, and 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 we know it's is this rumor innuendo, or do we does some has somebody heard this tape? Oh, people have heard it for sure. People that you know have heard this tape. People that you know have got this tape. Some of the people who have heard it don't have it, but some of the people you know do have it. Sometimes I feel like we're in Alice in Wonderland. You're the the Cheshire Cat man, and you're like pointing me in like fifty directions. So maybe Alice is this way. Maybe Alice is that way. Which that's that's not it. No, no, not any fault of your own. Like I definitely know how this works. I just find it interesting. I find this. I'm as someone who is not a tape collector and who grew up downloading torrents. Like this whole world fascinates me, and that's why I want to have you know. Kerry Humphreys is going to come on. He's already agreed to come on this year, and that's that's a big thing. Is like he used to just get stamps and hey, send me stamps. We'll send out you know bootlegs and stuff. That was that's so cool, man. But again, there's bootlegs that aren't in circulation. And they fascinate me too, of course. I mean, I would speculate, and this is, again, one of my classic moments, pure speculation, but I would say it's possible, if not likely, that more people than we realize have a copy of this tape. But and this it's is just my speculation. I was told that maybe five people in the world have it. You know, five, maybe five people. I don't know. That could be could be true. That could be false. And, okay, of these, so, and this is the November of 67 shows, not the... Not the uh, 70 Winterland shows. Correct. There's only really two songs circulating from Winterland 70. And I think the story goes that they were included as bonus tracks or filler tracks on a different trade that someone had made a long, 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 long time ago. And I don't know if the complete shows still exist. They they, they may do. Maybe they do. Huh. Things do get lost, but I should hope they're still around because the recordings were good. All interesting stuff. And I think the venue... And it was eventually even demolished and replaced with apartments in 85 after I think it closed in 78. Uh, I think the the last show was that New Year's Eve show we talked about in 78 into 79 when the Grateful Dead, the new writers of the Purple Sage and the Blues Brothers uh, mm-hmm. with, with Dan Aykroyd. So, but I say all that to sort of move the conversation to the background. So Jim turns 24 in December of 67. Not a whole lot happening in December 67, is there? Or... Is there, Travis? Well, there's quite a lot that happened in December 67, Brad. Funny you should ask. <laughs> we have a whole handwritten list of things. And like all good Doors history, we have highs and lows. Just touching on Winterland again, because that's where we've been, we've got perhaps the only listenable rendition of a blues song sung by Ray Manzarek, performed <laughs> at the Winterland. 
Yeah, we do. I believe there was another famous concert on the East Coast. Something happened. Yeah, there's uh, something to do with the police officer, I think. Little blue uh, man. An altercation that occurred. Yeah. Little blue suit. Little blue hat. Maybe. Little blue man and little blue hat. And I love that bit in the Oliver Stone film where he's, where Val Kilmer says, he couldn't get it up without a gun. I thought that was a nice bit of creative license. You know who introduced uh, in the movie, who introduced the band at New Haven? Bill Graham. Is it Bill Graham. It hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Vince Trainer also seen in the background of that, wearing uh-huh. his original stage clothes from the sixties. Far out. You know what I'm doing? I'm just sending you a file. Oh, okay. Of Vince Trainer. No matter what technology we use, we can never step back and be in the New Haven Arena and watch the cop come up and arrest Jim. We can't do that. We can't hear Jim tell the story of what happened in that dressing room. We can never relive that. We can hear the words if they were recorded. We can see it if there was a camera there. But you can never experience the shock in the audience. You can never hear the sound of the audience making or the expression on the cop's faces when he did that. And I was there. I saw it. That was the first Big Bang, and that was before my time. But it got me my time. In my mind, he had every right to tell his story to the Norhaven audience who had sat around for almost a half an hour waiting to, for him to get straightened out enough so he could come on stage. They were upset at the delay and had every right to be. And I think Jim had a right to tell his story. I was standing about five feet away from a whole cluster of cops. When he did that, I, I, if somebody had set off a bomb under their feet, they couldn't have been they couldn't have been more shocked and then angry, immediately angry. I mean, he stood up. He went to New England and stood up in a in a Connecticut arena and said, "The whole world hates me." What did he expect? And the surprising part was that until he began to tell that story, things were going pretty well. You know, the, the, the music had been pretty good. And then again, this was one of the light my fire breaches, one of those the interim, you know, the, where are we? Where are we? You know, the audience in New Haven, you want to hear a story? Yeah, yeah. It's a story about, you know. And it went on. And boy, it went to the cliff edge and then over. We knew there was trouble. I mean, the minute he said it, we knew we knew there was big trouble. That's when we headed for the back. That's when we, we, we went right back, which enabled us to see this brutality, uncalled for, uncalled for. Unnecessary. And Jim never weighed more than that, but probably 140 pounds. He started to get fat. He was slimmer. He was slightly muscular, but he wasn't. He didn't have much meat on his bones. He couldn't put up a fight. He wasn't a fighter anyway. <laughs> Two cops pounding this kid. You know, we called Bill the next day. I told Bill that we had witnessed Jim being punched, and 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 Bill said to me, you know, Jim wondered why his jaw was sore the next day. It's because the, the cop was punching him in the face. Another cop was standing behind him, giving him a full arm bar or whatever the fuck. He was hitting him across his back with his, in, in, in a closed fist forearm, slamming Jim across his back. While two cops held Jim, one on the right-hand side, one on the left-hand side. One cop punching him in the face and the other guy pounding him on the back. And I stood there and saw it. I was shocked. I never believed the police would do such a thing to anybody. No, we were, we, that was, that was an awakening for all of us. The five guys that were down, myself and, and the four, the four members of the organ factory who were down there. And, uh, Ed, Ed Bill had told them, of course, about this strange guy from Andover who had packed everything up 
while he had gone to the station and uh, tried to do whatever he could as a as, as then a 19-year-old kid. Uh, and, of course, the police didn't want anything to do with him. He was a minor, you know, just a hang-on as far as they were concerned. I think it's just so fascinating that December 9, New Haven Arena was the one day after Morrison's birthday. I just can't believe that there's not a connection between that, you know. Morrison's just trying to get a little action and this cop is telling him, no, I'll tell you what to do. And it's the day after Morrison's birthday. Maybe he didn't want to be cock-blocked by a cop the day after his birthday. I don't know. It was a Saturday night and the man was 24. He was out for a party. Yeah, I know, right? I guess it never really stuck. They ended up dropping the charges pretty soon after. Something on, on the timeline, Otis Redding dies on December 10th, just three days after recording his only major hit, Dock of the Bay, and his Beechcraft, I think it's a Beechcraft H-18 plane, crashed just four miles before landing at their destination. So such a low, man, such a low for... Uh, the country at that point, I know, you know, Otis Redding's such a huge figure. His Monterey Pop Festival performance is so electric. Hearing it and saying, you know, just a few months before this, I guess nearly six months before this in June. But, and one of the, one of the saddest parts about this is reading about it was that one of the members of the backing band, he was the only person to survive. And he was oh. able to use his seat as a flotation device, and he could have possibly saved the other band members and Otis Redding. He couldn't swim, so he just had to like, you know, come to the surface and float there, and he couldn't go back down and get anybody. And so they were still alive while he, you know, possibly when he came up and he couldn't swim. So, man, wow. really, a whole bunch. You know, I, th- I think the whole backing band besides him or the whole uh, other band who performed with with Otis died and, and Otis of course passed in the pilot so it did you know unfortunate situation and we go from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs uh December of 21st we actually have Ray and Dorothy are wed which at the time of this recording that was yesterday for us there's a beautiful yeah. pic- there's a beautiful picture posted on the doors social media's uh accounts with with them together and by everything I've read it it, it was real Beautiful little ceremony with them. Interesting stuff there. And that brings us to Christmas of 67. And then after Christmas, we, of course, get the Winterland performance at the Winterland Arena. So we have like a, we have Christmas of 67 here. And the day after, the Doors play the Winterland Arena on the 26th, 27th, and 28th, three, night, three consecutive nights at the Winterland Ballroom in December. And the interesting thing about this is it is recorded and we do have that captured by George Feast, as we've talked about, in pretty good quality. Uh, there, there are cuts throughout, and we'll talk about that as they happen as we go through the set list here, performance by performance. But he records the 26th and the 28th show, or at least portions of the 26th and 28th show. And he also records a Chuck Berry performance on the 26th. Yeah, that is a real shame. I remember reading that he was trying to save tape, so he manually faded the songs out and then cut them. I mean, I think it's an admirable thing to do to fade them out like that, so it's easy listening, but, oh, my God, buy a longer cassette. Yeah. But we have to be thankful for what we have. I mean, you know, we are addicted to this stuff, so we always want more. We always anticipate more. I mean, what a what a series of shows, you know, to have anything from. Yes, and going back to 
the the pageantry of the Winterland Ballroom and the pageantry of a Bill Graham show, we have this beautiful artwork and the artist on this. And I, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna ask you if you I'm gonna put you on the spot again. I, I wouldn't have known this if I wouldn't looked it up. Was Bonnie McLean? And do you know who she was married to? I sure do not. She was married to Bill Graham for a while. Actually, that was Bill yeah. Graham's wife for a period of time. And I think they ended up, they end up separating due to, of course, probably, I think, uh, I think Bill Graham missed the birth of their first son, which I think oh, was, no. was, was, didn't really contribute well. And he was, you know, he was a really busy man with his business ventures, but she did some amazing artwork. Uh, actually, if you are watching this episode, the artwork is actually somewhat featured on the podcast of this, but it's this lady holding up a peace symbol with her left hand, and she's got like some very holly green, very, very Christmassy sort of greens with it. There's like a fern surrounding her. There's a lot of deep blues or not deep blues, but more tur- turquoiseous blues with some purple. And, and then you have like the band names, you know, the doors, six days of sound, December 26th, New Year's Eve, the doors, Chuck Berry, Salvation, the 26th, 27th, 28th, lights by Holy Sea. And then you have December 29th and 30th, Chuck Berry headlining, Big Brothers and the Holding Company, Quicksilver Messenger Service, lights by Glenn McKay's headlights, and then the Fillmore scene at Winterland. Plus New Year's Day, Jefferson Airplane, Big Brothers and the Holding Company, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and Freedom Highway. So they fit a ton of information on these cards. And what I find interesting about this, I want to do a whole episode on the car, on the artwork of this, because if you look at in 70, as the doors start performing uh, on the Roadhouse on the Roadhouse Blues tour, like a lot of plain, like looks like they just sort of copy and paste some, you know, cut out newspaper pictures or whatever, and just put them on a poster, man. It's not as, as there's not as much soul, man. Uh, they get a little boring, don't they? It does. Have you got, have you got, that poster you were describing before, have you got that framed in your house? Don't you have that one? I have the handbill framed of that one. The uh, handbill. Yeah. So I have the little handbill framed. I would love to have the poster, but some of the ones, like I, if it has like multiple tickets, I feel bad getting. I like the ones where they like, because they have like multicolored tickets. Like some of the tickets are different colors, and I, and I would, and I'd want to get those. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> I, I would have to get them all, and I'd spend a lot of money. So I try to get things like. There's just a poster in one handbill. There's not like multiple handbills. But she I does. must admit, I have similar associations. I've I never thought much, particularly about as you say. Some of the posters get really boring, and the Cal Palace poster is quite boring. It's got that. It's got that Joel. Bro, is that a Joel Brodsky photo? Uh-huh. Morrison with his shirt off with the hand. Is that is that a Brodsky? I think um, you, I think you may be right. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about who took the photo. And then it's just very basic, but. I want that poster now because I've got film from that show. Yeah. You know, you get these connections and you become obsessive about having a, a thing from a place and time that somehow means something to you. Yeah. But th- I think that is from the first album shoot. That is Joel Brodsky. You you nailed that. I thought so, but I wasn't sure. I wasn't going to be too confident about it. Just because take- in the Doors movie, it's Gloria Stavis who takes those photos. Yeah, <laughs> Not that well, we should um, rely on that for information. but Getting onto the show's. So one thing, talking about the preservation, and I will play a little bit of the Chuck Berry show because yes, one of Let's hear it one of, then this oh man, I'm I'm so happy I'm so happy that George Feast recorded two of the Doors shows. I'm I'm sort of upset that he did a waste of tape. I'm, I'm this is gonna I don't want to say waste of tape. I'm 
and and maybe as a Doors fan, I'm sure there's Chuck Berry fans thinking, man, yeah, I'm, I hate they wasted all those tapes on you know the Doors or whatever. You know, hundred percent. I, I I don't begrudge them for saying that. But he does like a six minute version of my dingling and where the crowd sings along and it's like uh, I gotta hear the quality of this. I never heard this recording before. I'm in there with a fucking tambourine again. <laughs> So if you the listen, crowd. if you listen to this, the crowd is really into this. He gets the girls to he gets the girls to say, "I want to play," and then the guys are saying, "My dingaling." So you know. <laughs> so so this is literally eight minutes though of him like, "Hey, now here's what's going." To. He's talking to him. He's just like, "Hey, here's." And you hear you hear George Feast here just getting after it on some vocals. But it's eight minutes of that man. Let me see if he he gets really into it here at the end. <laughs> but I'm glad we have it. Don't get me wrong. But man, would I love to have that 27th door show than to hear an eight minute version of my dingling. <laughs> yeah. I got to say, I would uh, rather have that tape as well. The, you know, the Chuck Berry said the crowd is really into it to begin with, at least I think the, the call and response and they still seem genuinely happy with it. I don't think they have any issues with it. They do. There's a lot of laughter during Chuck Berry's set during the call and response part, but he does my dingling, hoochie coochie man, rock and roll music, Johnny Be Good, Memphis, Tennessee, dust my broom, sweet little 16, which is sort of problematic nowadays, and Maybelline. Good set for a Chuck Berry set, I suppose. I, I, I'm not the aficionado on Chuck Berry sets, but I guess those are the ones you'd want to hear. <laughs> But I'd want to hear that set. I mean, that'd be great. So, hey, one thing I talked to our buddy, Chris Simondet. I did ask him about the shows. Uh, one of the rumors that I heard, and this came from our buddy Greg, a.k.a. What, what did he go, used to go for? Boot Your Butt? Did he go by Boot Your Butt on the forums? On YouTube, you can still find him as Boot Your Butt. Yeah, Boot Your Butt on YouTube, Greg. Now, I'm going to mess his name up, too. Is it Perulis? Is that his his name? Yeah, I think someone once, re- once referred to him as Greg F- Perulis. Oh, so <laughs> what? Because because it's Jeff. It's so it's Greg Perulis, and then there's Jeff Alulis who did the who helped Jeff Penalty who helped with Robbie's book. But they are yeah. pronounced the same, same thing. But I was I, I had put some feelers out with him and Chris. I asked Chris. So apparently, the Chuck Berry set, and this is this comes from Greg. He had always heard that the set that the backing band for. So I heard a couple of different stories on this. So to, to go on a tangent of a tangent, I heard so one person said the doors are playing background on, on Chuck Berry's set. You can hear it. And I was like, what? And so you listen, you hear their instruments, but, but that's, I don't think that's Ray playing keyboard. I'm like, I would almost put money that that's not Ray playing keyboard. And everybody, the person who commented this, everybody said, Hey, that's definitely not Ray playing keyboard. Somebody else said that's the Steve Miller band playing background. I said, that is, and I thought, that is such an odd claim to make. So I asked Greg about it. Greg said, 
from my understanding, that is the Steve Miller band playing back background on that. And then I asked Chris about it, and he said, I have heard that the Steve Miller band played on that. Yes. Barry always used a pickup band, so presumably he didn't have his own amps either. So from what I understand, he used all the Doors equipment, comes in, he says, hey guys, I don't have anything. Well, can I borrow all of your equipment? Which explains why we hear all the Doors equipment being used for Chuck Berry's set. Yeah, I think that makes sense that they use the Doors amps. I haven't listened to the set close enough to hear if they're using Ray's organ, but it definitely just had the same tonal quality as the other uh, George Feast tapes. Yeah. I mean, it definitely sounds like a similar drum thing, drum kit. I would imagine that I have to look back to my interviews with Vince to see what he says about the Winterland shows and Chuck Berry because he talks very openly sometimes about other bands bringing substandard equipment and him angrily and you know almost abusively doing them a favor and saying no we're gonna use our gear and you can use it too and so maybe he did that with chuck berry i mean i hope he wasn't rude to chuck berry especially on his first night with the band yeah yeah because this like you said this is his first night with the band i do want to get in the shows real quick and talk about those and then after we i think we'll we'll mention some this is comes from the mild equator we'll talk about some things and we'll to say, share some thoughts. And then after that, I want to dig, after we talk about the shows, I want to dig into some of the minutia of the tapes. And I have some information on that. I know you probably have some information on that as well. As we mentioned, the 26th show, we do have, uh, we do have a recording of Chuck Berry and Salvation performing on this as the opening acts. The set list includes Backdoor Man, Break On Through, including the Wilson Pickett, Don't Fight It. When the music's over with the first ever version of poor Otis Dead and Gone that we know of. Is that correct? Is that- yeah, at least as far as we know, it would have to be because, as you said before, it was just over two weeks prior to this that Otis Redding passed away. Unless they played it at, uh, what what was the two shows? They, didn't they play two shows before this? Was that the Shrine Auditorium that they played before this? Yeah, I guess it's possible, isn't it? You never know with the doors, with Jim Morrison, how unpredictable he can be. Yeah, because there was a Shrine Auditorium show, and what was the other possible? Because so, they played this, the 26th. We didn't fully go over the history, but they did. They played the Shrine Auditorium on, you know, shortly before, you know, 22nd and the 23rd. I was trying to think. The Swing Auditorium we know about on the 16th, which was the show that we thought we had a tape of, but ended up not being the tape of, right? Yeah, that's the one. What other shows did they play before that? So that would have been the 16th. I'm working backwards. The Sacramento Memorial Auditorium, that was a canceled show. Oh, I remember that. That was the show that Jim didn't show up for, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Either he didn't show up for some reason. I forget what the reasoning was behind that. Maybe there's... Fred Shaw says that he doesn't arrive. At all. When there is no son of Jim. Yeah. So that would have been the only options that we have. So we said that, so Sacramento didn't happen. The swing, so either the swing auditorium or either the two shrine shows would have been the only thing, the only way that he would have possibly done, done poor Otis. Seems unlikely. I'll, I'll chalk that up as unlikely. So we'll say this is the first performance until evidence proves us wrong. You have two Ray tracks close to you and I'm a man. I, I love Ray. I hate that, that two of these this ain't. This isn't the full concert, is it? Is this the full concert? Do we believe this is the full concert? Do we believe it's a complete set in New Haven or in uh, Winterland? In Winterland, in the first Winterland night. Good question. I think that that tape. I don't recall there being any real cuts. I never thought of it as being incomplete. Yeah. I don't know. It's a short show. It's a very short show. 
but but I think it's a good tape. But it it makes sense for the venue for it to be a shorter show. I just feel like having I don't know having two Ray songs. Nothing against Ray. I don't know. It's, it seems like I. I'm, but I think there are some redeemable moments, and and I think Raymond Zarek is an amazing performer. Probably my favorite member of the band overall. Don't get me wrong. But we talked to talk about photographers as George Feast, Truly Fike, and Baron Wallman. We talked about the artwork. Holy C does the lights as mentioned on that. Vince Trainer begins his four-year engagement with the Doors at this show. It includes a rare performance of I'm a Man with Ray on vocals. And we when we mentioned like these could have been photos shot at any of the Doors shows along this bit. So I think it's worth mentioning here with this close to you, I'm a man situation. You notice that close to you falls apart almost unnecessarily out of nowhere. Which is exactly what happens at the Aquarius Theater. Stay on A. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. See, we haven't done these songs in a long time. No one, we haven't done them since the whiskey, actually. No, that, that. So as filler, we're stuck. No, that that was pretty good, Ray. Really. Did you think so? And when I heard that, it sounded to me like they had done it on purpose. And Winterland, they segue quite nicely, I think, into I'm a Man. And it, to me, is a good Manzarek moment. He sings well, and Jim backs him up a little bit. And I, I think it's fantastic, actually. The only listenable thing that you, the only great moment you could say is worth listening to from Ray in the Doors career with Jim Morrison. But at the Aquarius, it sounds like they're, they're, they're it sounds like they're stopping on purpose during Close to You, which is bizarre. And I'm going to go back on my word here and say that like Ray does do a pretty solid version of Close to You in New York and Pittsburgh when they're recording Absolutely Live. Yes, yeah. He does actually come to the party and do a pretty good job. You it derails and did you know it derails in Detroit as well. Right. Right. It's so weird. And I have that in my notes. Like, I, I don't know why, but they always seem to derail on close to you. I don't know what it is. But, oh, I think when Detroit is like, oh, I messed the words up. I messed the words up. And then, you know, they sort of vamp a bit. But like, like it's like they stop it on purpose. Like, I, I'm. do you think they self-sabotage on close to you for whatever reason? My, look, I have a, a lack of of knowledge when it comes to blues artists like i know a bit of muddy waters and i like a bit of john lee hooker and stuff but my instinct has always been that they are imitating something that happened on someone else's record because the doors did that and they borrowed from they borrowed not only did they rip off musically they ripped off afro blue and there's the rumor that they used to play a song called latin bull number two but when they released absolutely live they called break on through break on through number two you know and i think that's you know someone would say 
an homage or an ode to these artists that they like, or you could say they're directly ripping them off or being influenced by them. And I've always suspected that there's some artist who did a version of Close to You or a blues song that falls apart and then vamps and segues and medleys into something else. That's always been my speculation that they're copying what someone else did when they train, when they derail close to you. But have it, like I said, I don't know enough about these artists to make a reference to that. If it's actually true, it's just always been my speculation. You know, on the, under that speculation, one theory I've had or that, that every single person I've ever talked to is shot down that has even tangentially heard the doors or, or experts on the doors. I always thought like that Pittsburgh version of when the music's over, when he does the screeching noise is very, very reminiscent, almost like Jim mimics the portion of in a God of like where they where Ray sort of goes, like there's a very distinct keyboard sound Ray goes for. And then Jim seemingly does the in a God of sound effects. He tries to do the guitar. He goes, like, I can't, I can't do it obviously, but it, and maybe it's because Ray does that and Jim's just sort of, you know, screwing around. I don't know. That's just. Are you talking about when, when Jim goes, ah, ah, like that, like that bird call thing? Yeah, he does that, but then he goes, ah, ah, ah. like, you know, like it's almost like the guitar part. I don't know. I, I need to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. It's vaguely because Ray swaps chords, and then he usually doesn't go, but he goes to like the almost a similar sounding chord, if not the same chord as in that they go to in, in a God of Davida. And I don't know, maybe I'm, I, yeah. and yeah, I could very well be tying stuff together. I don't know, but, but you got to listen to in a God of Davida after this again and keep that in mind. I'm yeah. not going to shut it down because that would be ridiculous. I want to hear it. Yeah. I want to listen to it with that in mind. But speaking of something that luckily didn't get shot down was George Feast bringing a tape, a cassette recorder into the venue. And here we have notes from Chris, uh, the great uh, contributor to Mild Equator. In late December of 1967, George B. Feast attended two of the three performances by the Doors at the Wendelin Arena in San Francisco, capturing both performances on a, a Wallensack cassette recorder. While these recordings were previously known to collectors and fans, new transfers of the masters revealed the excellent sound quality still preserved on the tapes today. We'd like, okay. So, you know, great stuff there. They play the 27th. We don't know a whole lot about that. Chuck Berry and salvation, of course, still opening bill Graham presents this. Of course, the set list we know includes break on through and backdoor man. Photographers are truly Fike and Baron Woolman. Same artwork, you know, great stuff there. The interesting thing about this and, Maybe I want to come back around and we'll, we'll mention it here, but also have some notes from our buddy, Greg, uh, boot your butt on YouTube about some of this, but the doors interrupt their performance to watch themselves on the, the Jonathan Winters show. So we'll put a pin in that. We'll come back to it, but just remember that happened. Going on to the 28th show is the only other tape we have. And just, I'll, I'll run down this before we get into the nitty gritty of the tape itself. This is on the 28th. Of course, Chuck Berry salvation. We have Alabama song into backdoor man. A very rare version of your lost little girl, love me two times, wake up, light my fire, and the unknown soldier. This 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 set list includes the earliest known live version of your lost little girl. True, true, it does. An audience tape recording from the final night at the Winterland is known. I don't know what that's. We have that final. Is there a full tape possibly that's known? 
Are you looking at Mild Equator here? I am looking at our, our friends over at the Mild Equator. Audience said from this final night of Winterland is known. I mean, it's ambiguous because this tape has always been known, but maybe maybe there's an alternative one, another. Could be. And the doors do not return until uh, to the Winterland until 1970, which we've talked about. Um, I mean, I've not heard of an alternative tape, but that, of course, doesn't mean much. <laughs> well, yeah. Doesn't mean our friend, Greg Perulis, or Greg effing Perulis, as people have so aptly named him, he sent me a lot, and I'll tr- I'm going to clarify for a minute. We do love Greg, and we do want to give him a shout out here. Hundred percent. We're going to call him Greg Effin Perulis. Well, no, that's that's a that's a term of endearment, you know. Like, hey, I'm Greg Effin Perulis. I'm the man, you know. Yeah, that's it. I'm the man, and that's that's Greg. You know, he's the man. Hey, what kind of beer are you drinking again? Peroni is that the type of beer? I am drinking a Peroni, three point five percent. That is point nine of one standard drink. And it is manufactured. Well, I said it was manufactured in Australia, but you know it's actually manufactured in New Zealand. Yeah. So, um, but it's an Italian beer, right? It's an Italian beer. Yeah. Greg actually does drink Italian Peroni the the right way. So he said, "Stick well, stick it to well, you on that." No, I don't really. Did he just message, did he did he message you because this is secretly being broadcast live to the private network of doors collectors? <laughs> Damn it! You caught me. No. I just thought that was a good. Realized the inner circle was listening. Um, so I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna, I don't know, I'm I'm pretty good at reading and 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 not saying what I don't need to say. So he said that he was friends. So this is from Greg, as we mentioned. Uh, boot your butt on YouTube. I'm friends with George Feast. Uh, he hasn't been active in some time. I sent him a message last year, but he never read it. Greg also, I guess, good to to mention he did work on the Boot Your Butt release, which is a fantastic box set. Now out of print, long out of print. I think you can still get it on iTunes. I bought it on iTunes. It was still like sixty bucks on iTunes, but I feel like for somebody like me who didn't get any tapes, or it was, I bought it before I knew anything about any tapes. So uh, it was really cool to listen to. But long out of print, he helped work on that. He had a huge part in that, I believe. I, I don't know to what extent. I, I hope to interview him one day. You know, I know he's probably busy. We've talked around it, but maybe one day. Him and Avery, who who runs the other voices, does some great work over there. I think they're actually premiering. Uh, Avery is actually premiering at the second tape, uh, the on the twenty fourth. So it'll this this will be out after this. So go check out the other voices. YouTube channel for some corrections to that tape, some EQing and stuff like that. We had, this is Greg talking again. We had first gen copies for boot your butt, but now there's master clones out there. Lynn, Susan, myself still think the first gen sound better. George recorded a bunch of shows at the Winterland. I don't remember if he attended the show on the 27th. There's a stories about the door stopping the show on the 27th to bring a TV set on stage so they could watch the airing of the Jonathan winter show. I doubt they would pause to watch the, the entire show was probably just their performance. But wouldn't there be a commercial break and other guests between both songs? There's some confusion about the November Winterland show the Doors have, whether it's the Fillmore or Winterland, because both shows were back-to-back. I think it's interesting just regarding Greg's point about the Jonathan Winters show. Not because no one will ever know until we hear the recording, but... Another, yeah. So that's another thing, though, is like how much of the show, like, hey, did they just have a TV on the ready? Like, hey, just keep that... had it on the ready, yeah. Vince never mentioned it. He would have had uh, to been the one to set it up too, wouldn't he? You'd think. I guess. I surely, surely he would have to have been there, yeah. Hmm. 
Oh, no, here we go. Here we go. We know who we have to, we have to ask about this. We're never going to get the answer to this question. Greg Shaw. No, no. Oh. With their performance for the debut of the Jonathan Winter Show being broadcast this evening at 10 p.m., the Doors have Rich Linnell lug a black and white television on stage with them and he angles it towards the audience. Okay. In John Densmore's book, he describes how during the performance of Backdoor Man, the Winter's show comes on and the band stops mid-song to watch themselves while the audience looks on in bewilderment. There you go. So Rich Linnell, concert promoter Rich Linnell, uh, he was the one who did that. Wow. That is hilarious. You know, I guess I could have just looked that up, couldn't I? Because I've got digital copies of the books for this reason. You've got digital copy of On the Road? Oh, not On the Road. I mean, of uh, of all the band members' books. Oh, right, right. So this is from Robbie's book. I'll go ahead and put this in here on page 173. Our episode of Jonathan Winters aired later that month when we had a gig at the Winterland Arena in San Francisco. Back then, of course, there was no way to record a show and watch it later. So in the middle of our set, Bill Siddons brought a TV on stage. We stopped playing, put a microphone up to the TV speaker, and sat down to watch ourselves. We thought it would be a treat for the audience, but the screen was only about 19 inches wide. I doubt anyone past the first few rows could see or hear anything, so we just awkwardly watched the show and then awkwardly resumed our set. This was only a couple weeks after our New Haven show when our fans had learned to expect the unexpected from the doors. I don't think any of them expected that. So huh. he said Bill Siddons rolled out. I would you I would tend to would you tend to disagree with that statement? I I don't know. I mean, I couldn't possibly agree or disagree. You know, two people remember something differently and I don't know what Shaw's source of information was for that. Yeah. Let's see. This is such a long excerpt. So let's see if I can sort of wait through this. If you recall, we were watching Jonathan Winters in the so this is John does this weird thing sometimes in his book where he like acts like he's talking to Jim. I don't know if you if you remember that part in his book where he's sort of like, "Hey, I have another writing, writing letters to Jim, right?" Yeah, yeah. If you recall, Jim, we were watching Jonathan Winters in the dressing room, and right in the middle of his hour long TV show, we had to go on stage just when our segment was due to come on any second. So we brought the television on stage with us, positioning it on top of a large amplifier. I tuned it to the correct. I tuned it. So this is John talking. I tuned it to the correct channel and turned the sound off. Remember, it was Robbie's job to keep an eye on the TV for our appearance, since he had the best angle to see the screen. We started the set with our usual break on through, and then in the middle of the second song of our set, Backdoor Man, we appeared on the TV screen on Jonathan Winter's show. I got up immediately and walked around the drums, turned up the sound on the set, and sat down on the floor of the, fa- of the stage facing the TV. As a live song petered out, you... Ray and Robbie joined me on the floor in front of the set with our backs to the audience of several thousand people. Our TV performance was rather subdued until the end when you freaked out. It looked like you were in a trance. Very bizarre. Our growing image as a strange group was intensified on national TV. The reaction from the live audience at the theater was amusing. Some of them laughed. Some of them must have thought they were so arrogant that we'd brought a tape of ourselves. It couldn't have been being broadcast then. That would have been too coincidental. Maybe some of the audience thought that possibly they had taken too much acid. We turned the TV off, went back to our instruments, and started playing Backdoor Man from the middle of the song where we had left off. I'm sure most of the Winterland audience thought we were out of our minds. It sure was fun. Sometimes you weren't too stoned that night. We were on as a band, and everything else was forgivable when we were tight. Well, 
almost everything. We so we have three different people. Uh, I don't know how reconcilable all this is. We have three different accounts and three different people apparently bringing it out on stage. Yeah, I mean Bill Siddons and Rich Linnell were the original equipment handlers for the band, yeah. and given that this was Vince's first show. Let's think about how people work, the changeover of responsibility. It's possible that Bill and Richard still helped lug the gear. So you, you think know, I mean, so it's like a it's, it's like the Gnostic or like the the uh the four gospels of Christ here. Like all these can be true and coincide, but they're from different perspectives and, and maybe everybody saw it a different way. So just because somebody I mean, says you get to the, the, the secret gospel of John and things get very different. <laughs> You've read the Gnostic texts, I guess, the Nag Hammadi scriptures. Yeah, they could all reconcile. Such a strange thing, though, to bring that. That is so doors. I would, I want a freaking recording of that show. George, yeah. man. Love to see that. Which we'll, we'll talk about the tape in a little bit. There's some funny parts on the tape of his. I, I've, I've, I listened to the tape so many times and I made notes of what he was talking about. It's pretty funny. Uh, Greg also mentions, going back to Greg Perulis. He has no doubt that Fillmore and Winterland appearances, all Winterland and Fillmore appearances, were recorded by Bill Graham. Most or all, he says. He also mentions regarding the December shows, Wolfgang's Vault has or had streaming copies of either Jefferson Airplane, Chuck Berry, and Big Brother's bits, and uh, Big Brother bits of all three of the shows, with quality v- very muddy and muffled. The claim that that they were officially recorded by Bill Graham, but Wolfgang Vault also had the Doors Toronto '69 and Felt Forum shows. They didn't claim those shows were Bill Graham related, but it seems like Wolfgang, which is Wolfgang Vault, has they they still sell a lot of posters. They bought a mishmash of things. They even had radio shows for bands like Berlin and Billy Idol and Motley Crue, not related to or being promoted by Bill Graham. The other thing is, Brad, that a certain member of the Doors in a Circle was known to have said to a certain collector friend that. Uh, they have other Bill Graham recordings of the doors, but the quality wasn't up to snuff. So I think this plays into another thing that I think has become like the big bad monster of music is AI and what AI can do and what we will allow AI to do. And the biggest thing I've seen is recently, if anybody who's a fan of the Beatles now and then recently, the the release of that, they were for years, for decades, even. They couldn't do anything because they had a demo of John playing the piano and singing with accompaniment. But I guess the tape recorder was very close to piano, so it was a lot louder than John's voice. And they they couldn't do anything with it in the mix. Well, AI, uh, a very not not a very intrusive form, was able to dissect and separate the two parts and was able to get and isolate John's voice. And listening to these shows, and we'll play a little bit of these shows, hearing them. These shows are ripe to test this stuff on because these are pretty straightforward shows. I think Jim's very front in the mix. The band's very front in the mix. I mean, there's some muddled parts in it, but compared to other door shows, I think these are very ripe to be picked as far as experimenting with AI. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think we've all been wondering that, as you said, ever since this AI stuff came on the scene, we've all wondered what it can do with a, a good quality audience tape or... I mean, yeah, because sometimes this AI technology completely rebuilds a performance 
and sometimes it can be used to restore the audio quality or separate things. And I'm curious about the future in that regard. And especially for a tape like uh, you think of the Danbury High School tape, which is oh, quite direct. Yes, yeah. But it's distorted as fuck, but it's quite direct. Or another great one would be the Boston 68, uh, March of 68, right before Phil Maurice. They played a great set in Boston. But that recording is organ heavy and very overloaded. If an AI could separate that and create a balance between the organ and the guitar and the voice, I think we'd be in for a treat. Yeah, was that the, that was the Back Bay Theater show, correct? Was yeah, that the that's 60s? the one. It's a great show. Thank you again to Travis Williamson. You can find Travis's YouTube channel, Mr. Good Trips, M-R-G-O-O-D-T-R-P-S, on YouTube. You can find this podcast on Twitter, at The Doors Pod, and on Facebook by searching for Opening the Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry. Music for this podcast was done by Christian Cornejo, of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. Hope to meet you back here, but until then, keep the doors open and the music loud. Wall and sock, a wall and sack, a wall and sack. What would you say? Wall and sack, a wall and sack, a wall and sack, a wall and sack, wall and sack. Hey, according to we're.